welcome to Sintalk. The Sintalkers around the table today discuss the sandbox of hills. We'll think about the distinctive human worlds in the hills and the mountains. Do we understand the plains from the hills? Why is the lived sense of space-time different in the mountains? Do gods often live in the hills? Is the hilly always marginal and does it lie between earth and heaven? What does it mean to conquer mountains and has it been historically important? Can hills be relocated? Why do mountains generate a spiritual response in people? Do shepherds have fixed places of worship? Are state formation processes different in the hills? Is there a definite line between hills and mountains? And will we flatten all the hills in the long run? We are pleased and privileged to have two sun talkers with us here today. Professor Shridipto Sen, he is a professor of history and Middle East and South Asia studies at UC Davis. He is trained as a historian of late Mughal and early British India. He has also been writing about the ecological and cultural histories of rivers. And Professor Mahesh Sharma, he is a professor of history at Punjab University, Chandigarh. He was brought up in the hills and has worked on people, culture and the history of hills. So uh, Mahesh, why don't we set the ball rolling with you with a somewhat innocuous question and you know, you you walk the hills, um, Himalayas primarily, but I'm sure the others. And as you look back and reflect on um, both the theory, the reading, the study, but as well as the lived experience of being in those parts. How would you answer the question of who lives in the hills? Um, who's there? And this is both obviously a question in the present, but also a historical one. And obviously we'll pose that same question to you, Shudipto, but why don't we start with you and see what comes out and we'll try and link it up with the others. Yeah, before I answer this uh, question, you know, to me, the question is that uh, what is a hill and what is a mountain? Hmm. And what's the relationship between the hill and the mountain? And uh, how do we imagine mountain, for instance, you know? And uh, when I think about a mountain and the way the mountain has been perceived, uh, we think about uh, how solid, rock solid a mountain is, you know, how, how eternal, how unmoving. Its, its, its presence is always there. It is something, you know, that challenges the, the heaven, so to say. It, it challenges the sky, the stars. That's what the mountain is. It's unchanging. For instance, uh, I'm reminded of uh, a 9th century uh, Waka, a predecessor of Haiku, a tale of essay, where a poet says that, uh, and he's moving out of the capital and going to the country, and he sees the mountain for the first time with a snowy peak and the spring is already there. And he says that, how come, you know, the seasons pass by you and you are so unchanging? 
Now, that's one perception of the mountain. That's always been there, unchanging. You know, and so it would be with the people, you know, unchanging. So it would be with the cultures, unchanging. But then, you know, I am reminded of, uh, uh, of, uh, of an anecdote as well as my personal experience. I am uh, moving. Mm -hmm. I am moving uh, towards uh, Kullu. And uh, surreal though it is, from a distance, in one frame, I see a hill. And I see three distinct patterns in a hill. In the, at the bottom of the hill, the crop is ripe. It's all golden. That's what the color is. And in the middle is, you know, it's a mixed kind of a color. It's half green. It's a half golden. And at the top of the mount or the hill, it's all green. And in one frame, I get what, what do we, we mean by a season in a hill? What do we mean by a time in a hill? It's, it's a different temporal reality. So it's almost three different places. Of course, three different geoclimatic zones and all that. It's, it's, a, it's almost three different places. places. And that's what, is, uh, that's what is interesting in one hill. Yeah. It's, 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 and I'm seeing it from a distance, you know. So depending upon where you are located, you know, depending upon where you are, you see a different kind of temporality uh, that is operating in, in the mountains. And that would uh, go for the cultures as well. For instance, when I think about time in the, in the mountains, I think about uh, time not in the sense when I think about time in, in, in plains. For instance, you know, uh, distance in the hills would be as good as a time in the mountains. You know, you have to go from one place to another. And they'll say that it's only 20 kilometers. Uh, it doesn't mean anything, you know. It, it might be a 20 kilometers, you know, going down a steep descent of, say, about uh, uh, 1,000 meters, and then, say, going up a ascent of another uh, 1,000 meters. But then, you know, the straight line is not a, a, a shortest distance in hill. It's always a curve. So you, you move in a curve, go down, takes you a couple of hours. And then you move up, it takes you a couple of hours. So what you imagine as, you know, few kilometers in, say, in an hour would take you a good amount of half a day or almost a full day, you know. So the whole temporality about the mountain is, uh, is, is very different. How does that impact? That uh, defines the culture. Is hmm. that what you are asking? Yeah, you're good at mind reading. Yeah, that, 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 that defines the culture, for instance. Uh, when we think about the mountains, let, let it, it's also about how mountains or hills happen to you. For instance, uh, you think about the river and you move from the plain, the river is placid. You know, you, it, it, it's, it's broad, it's huge. And as you move up, the river becomes narrow, it's turbulent. You, you hear the sound of the river. When you move from the plains to the mountain, you see that the vegetation is changing broad-leaved, evergreen forest, they are changing. The pines are coming up, the conifers are coming up, then the devdars come up, and then eventually there are no forests. There, there is only alpine meadows. If you, when you move from the plain, you see that even the, even the way the people are living is changing. The houses, they are changing. From the adobe houses earlier, it would be, you know, the small houses where, wherein uh, the local structure of wood and uh, a stone would be married into, and because uh, they are good insulators and you need heat to preserve, that there, are, that there is no central heating as one is used to these days. 
So you have the animals living along with the human beings. The relationship between animals and humans would be an entirely different. When you move through the hills, the economy would be changing. For instance, you know, you would, uh, as you move up, you'll see that there is a mixed kind of uh, agriculture, subsistence though it is, but uh, some kind of cattles are there. And then from agro-pastoralism, it will become, you know, pastoral agrarian economy where there will be more of uh, animals, less of... Uh, where, where do people stop living? Where, uh, where, where are things less settled? The things, th things are settled everywhere, except that, you know, uh, the, the, there would be people who are moving, particularly after, say, about 5,000 meters or uh, so, you know, you won't find uh, many people living there, except there may be an, some people in and around Ladakh that we know of uh, today. But then there, there, there are a whole range of pastoral communities there. There is no agriculture. So whether they, you are ta talking about mashtangs in, uh, in Tibet, about shampas now in Ladakh, or you are talking about the Gaddi shepherds, they, these are the communities, you know, they are transhumans. They would be moving from one alpine zone to another, to, to, to the temperate climate. They wouldn't be living there for, uh, for the whole time. Interesting. And this is, this is what is impacting the, the cycle of ritual also, about religion also. For instance, you know, you think about Shiva and how, is, uh, how, how in the Himalayan lore Shiva is depicted. He is there for six months and then he moves with his family down to the temperate climb hmm. during the winters. He can't live in the hills and during the summers he would once again move up. And this in a, in a rough way, you know, would define also would, the would, way the would, life would you, is. Would you say that the prime driver... Is the seasons? Seasons, they do determine the way people live. Seasons do determine is, the, is the, the way the life is organized around seasons, if I were to say so. For instance, in plains, when we are thinking about plains, you know, summer is a gay time. It is, of course, a welcome time in hills. You have sun, but it's a very busy time. There are no festivities in summer. It's a time to sow. It's a time to reap to harvest. Immediately as the summer starts, you know, people would harvest and then they would sow. And then before the onset of the winters, they would harvest and sow the crop so that, you, you know, harvest, it when, harvest the summer in the, when the summers come up. It's, 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 it's a time, you know, when they would uh, slaughter animals. They have to be smoked. They have to be preserved for the long winters when they have to fill down fuel for the, wood. You prepare for the winters and yeah, summers. It's, it's, it's yeah, all time, it, it, it's the whole time. It's a whole thing about uh, making your winters as comfortable as is possible. So summer is preparation for the winters. And winters, you know, when we think that it's a harsh time, it's a gay time in the hills, you know. This is a time when there would be marriages. This is a time when there would be festivities. Uh, for instance, if you are moving around all these uh, famous monasteries, all of them, they would have the winter festivals. It's, it's the winter devil that has to be defeated. That is mostly the theme as it used to be. Though the things have changed because of tourism now that the tourists are there in summer. So they, they, they have found a way out of that. But that is how it used to be. That was a community time. You know, people would visit each other. That was a time to connect with the, with the, with the kins. So it's, 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 it's an entirely different way of looking at the seasons. You know, it's an entirely different way of motivating your lifestyle and organizing it around the seasons. Unlike, you know, what, uh, the way we live in the plains. So it's an entirely diametrically opposite way of uh, living, living in the hills. Uh, the, the, the seasons would be.
Interesting. Shridipta, what is what goes on in your mind as you think of this question of obviously Mahesh has opened a whole sure. bunch of flanks, but who lives there and what is what's the historical take on on this for you from your perspective? Well, you know, the hills have been uh, shelters uh, for many different kinds of people, including people who follow transhumans and bring the flocks up and brings the flocks down. And then uh, the hills are also have been fiercely guarded. Uh, the hills have been often buffers uh, in a line of people who have been, you know, coming in and skirmishes and battles that have happened across various frontiers. But I also think of not just people who live in the hills, but also people who pass through the hills. And I think of, along with the wonderful images that um, Mahesh has provided, I would add the yak caravans, you know, bringing salt, uh, going all the way to Ladakh. I would Im include in other parts of the hills, not just the Garwas, the Gujars, and others who have been, you know, both agrarian, part agrarian, part nomadic trading communities. So um, it's a very rich tapestry of different lifestyles, um, uh, you know, of, of settlers and uh, outsiders and insiders and traders who come down. What does it do to polity? What does it do to states? What does it do to, you know, rulers and monarchs and kingdoms? Yeah, and I mean, like that? Is... What does it do to, what are the political implications of this? The frontier kingdoms of the northeastern hills, the Garos, the Bhutias, would come down for trade and exchange, um, you know, agrarian goods for hill goods, like uh, even ceremonial goods like yak tails going back centuries, you know, and um, and things like uh, woolen blankets and wool, you know, um, animal hides, things like that. But in terms of uh, hill communities, and not just, there are also hills, not just foothills, right? Right. Um, where have been sites of great struggle for dominance. The rise of Magadha, it takes you back to the hills of Rajagriha or Rajgir, where a series of encircling hills became the site of the foundation of various kingdoms, including uh, the kingdoms that were familiar to the Buddha. Do you, do you make a distinction between hills and mountains? Is it, is it important or it's uh, um, not so? It depends on the context. Sometimes that distinction has to be kept in mind in terms of, you know, uh, what good is a polity if it cannot command resources? So, you know, if, if the, the mountain's resources become scarcer as you go up, generally speaking. So um, that's different from the foothills where resource is much more resource-rich. And the other thing, of course, um, we haven't touched on, and this is also important, is that some parts of the hills and foothills are also forests. And those forests are uh, very rich in timber, uh, in, in animals, in game. Uh, and those have been places uh, for many, many hill forest and forest-dwelling tribes. Um, who, um, so it was not just the rocks that were shelters uh, or uh, barricades, but they were also the, the forest itself was a, was a refuge. So, um, you know, one of the things I always talk about is uh, in, in, in my classes, you know, Buddha, uh, sitting in Gridrakuta, you know, people asking for advice. Prasenjit of Kosala comes and says, "How can I defeat the hill clans of the?" Prasenjit uh, was uh, like the Kosala, the ruler of Kosala, who was a right. which was you know what later became Magadha, part of that right. adjoining. And country. he was he was a disciple. No, he was a king. He was uh, yeah. He actually came for um, to kind of see mm -hmm. and also ask some some questions. Some questions were 
um, you know, um, strategic not, advice. Not the not the questions of a devotee. You know, it was right. there were questions of a king, a monarch, and asked the the great Buddha, who of course knew not only the ways of peace, but also was familiar with the ways of wars and and warriors. And the Buddha says that as long as the tribes up in the hills, you know, retain their ancestral um, practices and habits and their long traditions, they're very difficult to um, to defeat. Meaning what? Like what are those because habits? Because of their their tribal cohesion, you know, cohesion, their, uh, cohesion and continuity of, and their 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 uh, togetherness. Right. Uh, and then, of course, when the Vrijis come to the to come to the Buddha and said, "How do we defend ourselves against all these kingdoms that are rising?" and says, "Well, if you." Uh, you know, um, maintain the the solidarity and the unity and the ancestral traditions of of your ways and your your tribal ways. You you should be invincible. The story is that at some point um, he picks up uh, some sticks and says, "Well, you can break one stick very easily, but seven, eight, nine hard to break." So, but the most interesting thing is that the word that he chose for his own order of the arhats, the first disciples, is the same word for a tribe, which is sangha. Mm. And the word Sangha actually, to, to me, some of the greatest Sanghas came from the mountains and from the hills. And uh, it's important to keep that landscape in mind. We think of um, sometimes kingdoms in a flat way, you know, in a topographically two-dimensional way on a map, because we are so used to two-dimensional maps. But we, I ask my students and I ask all of you to think of kingdoms and topographies in a three-dimensional way, as Mahesh was pointing out earlier. You have to think about altitudes and of different kingdoms. It turns out that some of the greatest kingdoms were uh, were, were launched from the plains, but uh, they included uh, their in their ambit forests and mountains. Without forests and mountains, you know, no empire would be complete. Have there been hill kingdoms, mountain kingdoms? Oh yeah, of course, which, which... of course, great, great hill mountain kingdoms of Avantipura, of the Shahis, you know, in Kabul, you know who. Resisted the uh, aggression of the the uh, people who came from the Ghaznavids, you know, Alap Tegin, Subuk Tegin, followed by Mahmud. Uh, these are some of the legendary fights. I mean, Alexander came and fought with Puru uh, across the Jhilam and and defeated. Um, you know, the Greeks built their own mountain kingdoms, and Alexander's Macedonian phalanxes were so proud of having conquered parts of hilly kingdoms that were invincible beforehand, you know. And they would give them new Greek names. I mean, one of the interesting... And they're invincible because of the because of the geography. And, yeah, in very oh, remote places, small kingdom. But in you remote... also refer to the Sangha, so there's something different about the way they cohere, the people, some kind of a... Yeah, I, I, this is more of a conjecture than I can't prove point by point. But going back to what uh, Mahesh was saying, you know, if, if your lifestyle is very uh, self-sufficient and your ways are attuned to the seasons and... These are kind of skills, you know, uh, developed over centuries that it's hard to, to, you know, break. And then, you know, it creates certain kinds of cohesion. Um, and tribal kingdoms have always, uh, especially hill kingdoms, have always had tremendous cohesion. They also had fights between each other, but, you know, they're, they're units um, that often function very, very efficiently. So I'm sure there are exceptions, but I mean, you hear about such kingdoms uh, which fell to the armies of Timur. Uh, you know, kingdoms that became very important to the Mughal Empire and the Mughal frontiers. Um, and Shalito, going back to the original question of who lives there, like are, are people who, and this is on historical timescales, not on evolutionary timescales, sure, sure. do, 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 
do people who live in the hills have always been there these are people who kind of moved off from the plains like and I, there may not be one answer to no a global kind of question i get that but like what's your imagery what would be the general smaller rule and sometimes for... outsiders come in and take over you know for instance the fights between the gurkhas and the garhwalis very very common you know very famous you know that gurkhas became dominant some garhwalis were pushed out and you can find similar instances of one particular formation uh, i wouldn't call them simply tribes larger than tribes you know conglomeration of of tribes you know which provide uh, the resource for human resource for kingdom can take over and uh, in some ways push people out i mean the the entire nepal story which is both in india and the present country of nepal is a good example of different groups of people who we lump together sometimes as nepalis you know there but, are but there are original hill people there are original hill people and there are people who actually have 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 moved away from the hills and live more on the sort of borders between the plains and the hills madheshis do that um you know and uh, you know there are different groups um uh the tarus who are a kind of a tribal folks who live right on the edges of the hills on the terai in some elevation and then the people who live further up um lepchas bhutias uh, some of them speak nepali but or, or speak other languages so it's it's actually a more of a overlap of different tribes and different clans you know and there are very remote hill people in arunachal in parts of meghalaya but have know. they have there been instances of outward aggression like the hill kingdoms uh, raiding the plains trying to expand it. i mean have there been instances of territorial expansion hill i mean there have been hill or like, mountain outwards yeah i mean i mean uh, there could be migration some, of people like madheshi sure sure but, sure or people who actually funny, funnily enough uh, came from across the himalayas from the high plains to the steppes and actually ruled parts of the upper gangetic plain in one fell swoop from the banks of the oxus to the upper gangetic plain the the kushan empire right avima uh, kadfes kujula kadfes and then of course kanishka and these are the people who brought uh, uh, iconic buddhism to india from outside the image of the buddha which was not worshiped in india was brought from some of these people who had worshiped buddha as a kind of a the clan totem in some ways on coins you know so th- these are all examples of various different kinds of possibilities we often think of the mountains and hills as kind of frontiers or borders uh, especially when you think about you know uh, stories of aggression and uh, expansion but often they are actually right in the middle the vindhyas are a very good example very different example of filter where people actually could move through the mountain passes and came up through the mountain passes and fights across the vindhyas became very common you know so um i mean the famously harshavardhana could not cross the vindhyas and go into the uh, valleys of the tapti and narmada because of the great kingdom of pulakeshin the second the chalukyas who defeated harsha so he couldn't go further south so um there are some instances of of the and, of and these and these within courts original people to the extent that they were primarily hill settlers and so on like if one here, thinks here of, i'm talking about people who were crossing yeah, over crossing, crossing i, I get hills, it but yeah. if one goes back to that the myths religion belief systems etc were they were they equally original or like i think oh. that is very difficult uh, in you know even in antiquity for um, there are some very remote hill hill tribes and shamans that you find in from the remote parts even today i mean they're actually disappearing now people have been sort of uh become more buddhist or accept christianity in some parts but they have been in 
in places like Nagaland, in places in uh, remote par- parts, you know, some of the upper tracts of the the, the tributaries of Brahmaputra, you know, uh, Lohit and, and uh, Dibang and places like that, you find shamanistic, uh, you know, groups who are so remote and there are no roads, uh, there are no bridges, there are no railways, and they, had, they have not been in, in the past. And, you know, they in some ways have preserved a certain kind of old lifestyle, you know, which is disappearing now. Uh, you can say the same things about the kind of um, uh, hill people that you see in Orissa. Uh, for instance, you know, the, you mean the tribal, the, the tribal groups, yeah, like the the uh, the Dongri Khons, you know, who um, actually Dong, um, you know, hill Khon, and they have their particular hill identity. Um, or I've worked on the uh, the people of Gumusar, the the Khons there, who um, were very militant groups, and he they sometimes came down from the hills. Some of them joined armies and militias. Um, a particular tradition of of covering your body, fierce warriors covering your body with black and and yellow marks, emulating the tiger, and, and so as and, as mercenaries, as mercenaries, as fighters, uh, denkias, and you know, uh, archers, and as um, you know, kandites, you know, people who wield the sword. Story of the Gajapati Rajas of um, of Orissa being helped by tribal people and defeating the Mughal army at one point. Very fierce. I was doing looking into some of the rituals uh, of warfare and of shamanic cults uh, that that existed. Then and these then. are, I mean, I, I know I used the word mercenaries like a minute ago, but this is primarily for those kinds of ends. So there's been a desire to socially and culturally assimilate into, um, you know, let's call it. This is it a very the, interesting story about incomplete assimilation. So you know, there's some ways in which hill people would come down and provide some trade, you know, engage in some trade and exchange and barter. Sometimes they would actually help out. The funny, funny thing is that hill people were actually enemies sometimes of the um, what called Garjat in Orissa of the of the kingdoms. You know those forest kingdoms. So forest kingdoms who who had their own other tribes there, but then the hill tribes. You know, and often the the, the relationship between uh, you know very dominant zamindaris and you know and uh, these smaller kingdoms and the tribal we were antagonistic. But sometimes when an outside aggressor came. They came together as they as they came to help the Raja Mukundadev's soldiers who were organized under uh, this famous uh, leader of the Pike Rebellion, whose name was Jagabandhu Bakshi. And I was doing that history of that Pike Rebellion, and I found that the cones had come down from the hills had actually sheltered him when he was conducting guerrilla warfare in the hills, in the in the forests, and sheltered him. But I was I was going to say just one thing, which is that the British. Uh, accounts actually talk about the fiercity of these warriors and their leaders. Some of them claim to be shapeshifters. They could apparently turn into tigers. And that was the that was the myth about some of these sort of um, tribal groups. So there's so many stories and lores about, you know, fighting capacity and, you know, a kind of simple hard life. And they, some of these early ethnographies done by military people and the British give us some interesting ideas about you know, like the Dongria Khons called the the hill their god, right? right. Um, in Niamgiri, exactly. Niampenu, uh, the Gumusar Khons called the hill uh, Lohapenu, you know, uh, and they're, they're aboard Lohapenu. It's god, and, you know, they were accused or at least suspected of some human sacrifice sometimes. Uh, and the idea that, you know, the good things in life are hard to come by, you know, like sweet and salt. And salt doesn't, you know, has to come from the plain. So you have to sort of barter and engage with, but without losing your identity. So it's a, it's a complicated question. I think 
contact and uh, um, assimilation are very important, uh, as is certain life ways and folk ways and rituals that uh, Mahesh was talking about, which have even older lives. And, you know, those things go on. But the question is whether they've kind of retained a kind of cultural confidence or whatever to yeah. to be and remain or at least stay close to what they are. Where, where are you on this question, Mahesh, on this question of direction of assimilation, direction of change? I was just going to say that, that yeah. you know, both you talked also about change and continuity in tandem. And so some changes take place, but some things also don't change that much. So that's the point that I took from what you were saying. Yeah. Uh, I worked a bit on uh, how, say, for instance, uh, religion is shaped in, in the hills. And I thought about... Uh, was, there, was there, like, let's say before the... I mean, one could argue whether Hinduism itself is a religion, but mm. you've spoken about Buddhism for a bit and you kind of alluded to the British Empire, so that kind of invokes yeah. Christianity in some shape and form. But was there a was there a form of capital R religion at all? Like, let's say several hundred years, no, we several not, hundred years we, ago? we are not necessarily talking about, uh, you know, capital R as a religion, you know. And as uh, Shudipta was saying that uh, religious formations, or if I may say so, beliefs are entirely different in the mountains and religion happens over a time in, in the mountains. And even, in, even today, if we go to the remote... Uh, villages in Shimla district or Ghadwal, uh, you will find that there are there are area-specific gods. Mm. And these are known as devatas or diotas. You can call them godlings. And they are uh, sovereign to their territory. That is, they rule the territory. They are, uh, they are the sovereigns who uh, resolve the disputes between the people. And... Everything they say is uh, is is a order, is a verdict that is and accepted is, by the people. And this is why as shamans and, and yeah, I'm coming to that. And how do they operate? And this is through the oracles mm. as well as shamans. Mm. And the oracle is only a medium who provides the voice on a particular day, and the shaman is one who is uh, officiating all the rituals as well as uh, he is the one who is, in a certain sense, you know, acting like a god in a defective way. And uh, this, this happens today. So much so that uh, there, there is also a belief that, you know, there is, if there is an afterlife, there has to be a way of contacting the afterlife. And so then the people, you know, they, they would like to visit their ancestors. So they carry a mud from the grave or from the crematorium. And uh, even from their houses, because the mud from the crematorium doesn't really last long. And they just go to the shaman and the, in, in Shimla or in Gadwal. And then they are able to contact the, their, their, their dead ancestors and they can seek advice, ask questions about their daily lives, about you know, how life is treating them. So it's an entirely different kind of uh, belief that is still there. And along with that, there are other forms of organized religion. What happens after contact with formal capital R religions? Yeah, th that's what I'm coming to now. Along with that, you know, the other uh, religion also happens. And it's not a very one-way process, you know. It's, 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 it's like, you know, uh, there, is, there is a way of subversion sometimes. There is a process of assimilation also. There is a process of acculturation also. So but they also... are happening all, all the three in tandem. And then, you know, that is how the 
uh, the capital R in a certain sense, religion as a capital R is establishing a kind of a hegemony over there. This is not only necessarily true of Hinduism, it's also true they're of... Subsumed, they're subsumed under... They are subsumed and uh, they are subsumed, they are ranked. For instance, you know, if I can think about so Chamba, these sovereign mini gods that you referred to, they would like fall under this. They they tree. would fall under this as not only the uh, repercussions as far as uh, we are thinking about religion, it has repercussion as when when we are conceiving even polity in the hills. Mm. So it, it it it's it's a correspondence of the two. You know, religion cannot be dissociated from the political formations that are taking place in the hills. So. They go in tandem, you know, the political formations. They are importing the religions from the capital R religion, from the plains. They are trying to legitimize themselves with the dynasties, the broad or the dominant dy dynasties from the plains. They are either the vassal states or they are the client states or even sometimes the partners as it happens. And, and then, you know, slowly, you know, the temples are coming up in the hills. And uh, it's a lag of about, say, 200 years or so you know, for the first temples coming up in the plains and say the first temples coming up in the hills. So with that kind of a lag, you know, the temples are coming up in the hills. With the temples, you know, you need people to uh, organize those temples. So you have a whole officiants, the rituals, you know, the priests who are coming to the hills. So they are being invited from different kinds of plains. You need text. So Sanskrit is coming up. The Sanskrit would mean what, that, what, you know, what the texts prior? There are no prior texts. The, the prior practices are all or oral, oral practices. So now the texts are coming up. So the people of the hills, these texts are not only the text, but even the script is alien to them. So there is a kind of a hegemony which is uh, established, you know, through this. And uh, what are the power dynamics between, let's say, these belief systems and these ritualistic structures and traditions, etc. and the ruling class or whatever? Like, what's the dynamic? Are these parallel structures? They inform each other in some shape and form. Um, who exerts more power and influence over society in general? It's meshed together. Yes, this religion versus state thing, if one were to carry that, I know both these words are big and they're somewhat yeah, I Western in their ontology, but where would where would it be in, let's say, Garhwal of 400 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago? So I won't say that, you know, there is a religion versus state. They are complementing each other. Mm -hmm. You know, when we are thinking about religion with R, whether we are thinking about, say, Buddhism in the higher uh, Himalayas, for instance, Tibet, and we are thinking about Hinduism in the Himalayas, you know, in Garhwal or Shimla or the entire central western Himalayas, you know, we are, they are, they are complementing the polity, the state, as well as the religion. They are complementing each other. And they are, you know, it's a symbiotic sort of relationship in which the local, the belief, as well as the people are to be brought both in terms of governance into the fold of the polity as well as into the belief system that is the larger belief system. So both the Brahmins in a certain sense as well as the Kshatriyas, the rulers, you know, they would, they would cement a kind of a bond with each other and bring these into, the, in, into this fold. Now, mind you, you know, while we are thinking about uh, the, the clergy, the priesthood, which is, which is being imported from the plains, most of these uh, rulers, they are from the hills. Yeah. They, are, they, 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 they shed their local roots and Brahmins, they are providing them with a new kind of lineage, the new kind of a genealogy, you know. Right. And they are uh, appropriating the surnames of, uh, for instance, in Chamba, they are appropriating the name of uh, Varma. In, in Mandi, in medieval <laughs> Mandi, they are saints. 
and uh, in uh, their parlors, for <laughs> instance, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, there is a whole construct of these people coming from Bengal, the God. Huh? These people coming from uh, uh, Kashmir. And Kashmir did uh, influence the hills in a big hegemonic way. Uh, both the ritual, particularly the tantra that is coming from Kashmir, both the uh, the, the Shavai tradition as yeah. well as the tradition of the goddess. And through these traditions, the, the belief system becomes subservient to both the traditions, whether it is the tradition of the Shiva or, or it is the tradition of the, of, of the, of the goddess. So it is, they are complementing each other while being assimilated, but then they are ranked below the, the higher tradition. What Sudipta was earlier talking about, you know, how the confederacies, for instance, work. Now, most of these uh, local clan area godling sovereign states, they would be also competing with each other. So while they are competing with each other, it's like the third force, you know, which, is, which, which becomes, you know, a cementing force. In the hills, for instance, in Kullu, there are more than, say, 32 or 34 bigger, smaller states which are competing with each other. So the, 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 these are the dynamic boundaries. These are the small devtas, you know, who are at war with each other. And if a devta is at a war with each other, then the people are... are, are what, what draws those boundaries? The bound, these, see, boundaries are uh, sometimes there, natural. There, for instance, from a, a, a rivulet kind of to a rivulet, from a closed valley to a closed gorge. valley, you know, a gorge to a gorge. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's a simple, you know, a clan, you know, a one lineage boundary, you know. So it, it cannot really be defined when there is a clan but kind of is, a boundary, you know. But is but, there often a geographical element? Yeah, the, the, ge ge the geographical element would be, you know, these natural... Uh, Boundaries that one is talking about, the rivers, the gorge, the closed valleys, and so on. But, but there's also what, mental geographies. They also yeah, the mental geographies they have are, their own you know, notion of thinking of where a kingdom ends and where the other precisely, begins. Precisely, precisely. And then what is happening, for instance, in Kullu, you know, there is this uh, Raghunajji who comes to Kullu, the Rama. It's a small one, inch, one and a half inch idol that is brought in, in the 16th century from Ayodhya to Kullu. And with the Vaishnavism coming in the hills, Vaishnavism becomes, you know, the major force in, through which uh, all these desperate uh, states, are they, they, they are arrested and then comes out from it a strong kingdom of Makarsa or Kullu. And this Very is not an example of Kullu only. This would be an example of most of the hills where the third, for instance, Sudupta was talking about Garajat and what Puri does to Garajat, you know. I mean, they are, they are, they are, they are fighting kingdoms, with each other, you know, and the Puri temples provide them that kind of focus around which, you know, they are able to give up their regional, local identities into a larger state Federation. of uh, This would be a case with, uh, for instance, with the Gurkhas, you know, what Goraknath uh, does to the hill uh, states of, uh, of, of Nepal. And uh, all of them, they assume, even today, in fact, we, we call Gurkhas. All the Nepalese are known as Gurkhas, though only there are a few districts which are known as, uh, known as Gurkhas. And then these are, as you, one would say, that these are dynamic boundaries. And then uh, both the Gurkha land and the Gadwalis, for instance, you know, they would, uh, they would flow into each other. People would flow into each other. Sometimes state, states would flow into each other. What happens when the British come? Because that's like another kind of state, another kind of conception, truly alien in some shape and form, not that adjacent. And uh, 
it's a little bit different from Raghunath ji making its way and so on. So talk us through a little bit of that dynamic and what's meta there. And I this mean, those phenomenon. earlier uh, earlier confrontations and earlier compromises are part of that layered history, right? So I would just add that yes, there's a lot of collaboration and coming together. There's also resistance and appropriation and tension, you know. And uh, you can see that, you know, um, that sometimes in in uh, in the anthropology we use the word little tradition and great traditions. Mm-hmm. The great traditions are always trying to appropriate the little ones, and the little ones are always trying to survive within the great traditions. But also sometimes seek legitimacy from the great and then tradition. seek legitimacy from the the great and blessings from from priests if necessary. Uh, but when the British come in, they bring in something that is actually implicit in our argument right here, which is the British bring in something. Fascinating, which is cartography, which is to say actual mapping, actual lines on a map. And which which years are we talking about? These are the first atlas of India is drawn by James Rennell in the 1790s, and then the Great Trigonometrical Survey of That's India 1802 is, uh, is 1830s, 30s onwards, hmm. uh, Lambton. But uh, but let's move forward, and then once you have you know. So until then, if one were to think of the spatial imagination and how do people visualize these things in their heads? Which is fascinating to think about. What, I, what was I, it like? You know, I mean, one of the things that, you know, is also buried in our conversation is that without hills, there would be no plains and yeah. vice versa. Because you, know. you see the plains from the hills. You do see the plains. I mean, it's a fantastic sight when you come down yes. from the Darjeeling, for instance. For, when you, come, you can actually see the entire, you know, lower Gangetic plain stretched out into the horizon. You can see that you know, the land is like that. Ancient Indians had a notion of, of territory, you know, Shakatamukha, the, the land Do the shape. people in the hills literally look down upon the people in the plains? They, they, they look down, but what are they seeing? Yeah. They're seeing opportunities, they're seeing fear, they're seeing what, you know? Um, probably seeing, you know, other, you know, there are people, in, there's steps, right? Literally, there are. Yeah. There are steps between really people who are hunter-gatherers or people who are herders and then who are agriculturalists. And that line, as you know, is is very sort of fluid in some ways. This is a something that Mahesh really, I think, you know, struck me. What you said is that you know the line of of rice planting and bajra, you know, millets go up, and but the and also you know the the herding also comes down, and there's kind of intermediate zone, right? And that is very important. There's another kind of distinction. But when the the British come, you know, where they're trying to actually conquer some of these kingdoms or and, and, and what's, the, them. what's the answer to the question of why did they do cartography? Like, what's the historical rationale? Uh, the first, uh, first impulse is military. Uh, these are all military cartographers. They're all part of what's known as the um, uh, the ordnance survey, you know. Uh, and uh, this is the um, the miners and sappers who were in the British uh, army who actually had to know terrain and uh, and ballistics and how to lay saps and blow up mud forts and you know basically it's a different kind of warfare where you but use, this is for resource extraction this is to, uh, this is basically for for you know to to try to compete with the french who are doing the same thing right the fight over uh, india in the 18th century between the french well the dutch and the portuguese came before but and they did a lot of coastal mapping but interior mapping of india starts when the british actually really assert their their dominance and um one of the fascinating stories about mapping is is the acquisition of the knowledge, really, of the territory. Um, and there's a tremendous sort of um, egotistic sort of uh, image of a cartouche in the Rennell map of Britannia uh, actually handing back uh, the map and knowledge to the Brahmins. Right. Uh, and so there's, there's that. But 
Uh, other than that, is actually was it a revelation? What what take us through the what was it like? What kind of an event or phase was it? Like what did we learn that we did not know before? Was it was it some kind of a change of consciousness? I mean, was it a had, big deal? I I think it was for the people who kind of understood for the first time understood maps. Maybe the first generation of educated Indians, you know, whose grandparents wouldn't have really had anything to do. There were other maps, you know. I mean, there are nakshas. There are you know, majantars and, you know, other ways of thinking about territory. But, you know, to see the entire Gangetic Plains sketched out in Reynolds' map, that's a big, you know, to see where things are. And the British had charts of, basically, this is how much, how many days would it take for an army to march from point A to point B on the plains, but from point A to point B in the hills, which is very different, and logistics and, and supply and things like that. So that changes in many ways. There's a new kind of imagination comes and what is interesting is that a whole slew of Indians are trained in this, the, the, the surveyors and assistants and people like Radhanath Shikdar, you know, who actually ends up measuring the height of Mount Everest. Of course, his name is not there because, you know, he was an underling, um, a smaller god. <laughs> he got it right. Hmm? He got it right. He got the height right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, Everest was the, the survey general. So, you know, it was under him that the mountain was measured. But that's obviously a very specific incident. But the, the main point I'm trying to make is that a certain kind of new uh, tutelage, a new kind of knowledge, a new sort of initiation took place with uh, geographical, cartographic imaginaries, you know, in which people started seeing them. Why did the British find it necessary to go to the hills and the mountains? Frontiers uh, of their kingdom, uh, very, very important. Uh, the Garu frontier in Assam, the Bhutia frontier, all these. You know, they wanted to, to push the... the the push limits. the boundary, literally speaking. Yeah, push yeah. the the limits of the agrarian um, state because the agriculture was the the mainstay of the British extractive just, process, which just, fed the army. Just more areas to tax, more areas taxed, and 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 basically trying to settle people. The one thing that we know from both anthropology and history is that the British uh, were very unsure of people moving Ooh, across the land. The itinerant. Yeah. yeah. People moving, Indians are moving around too much, too much. <laughs> and settle down. So every report is called a settlement. I always wonder about every everything is a settlement. The permanent settlement, the this settlement, the that settlement. And as Mahesh and there are I, too we, many nomadic tribes. Uh, yeah. We we study people. No, even when they settle, they are still move. You know, uh, the British wanted to move them in a particular way in railways. <laughs> Um, you know, and other other ways, but but you know, it's another it, very different conception of space itself. Um, they, exactly, and, and how one is supposed yeah. to occupy. It. Yeah, I mean, you know, it could there there could be a kingdom that really benefits from from people who move about. Uh, the greatest trading groups of India were were always moving about between hills and plains. The Vani Jakaras, who later becomes the same word as Banjaras. Yeah. You know, and the Banjaras were the mainstay of the armies because they provided all the logistics and the cattle and the bullocks, you know, which carried all those, uh, you know, cannons and, and, and weapons and supplies for the army. The British actually um, appropriated them, you know, and then ultimately uh, when they had no use for them, they became a criminal tribe. I'm simplifying a very complicated history. Of course. Yeah. And so so these are... I suppose now we are actually uh, mixing plains history with uh, history of hills and mountains, but that's inevitable. Now, going back to this question we posed a little while ago of what happens to state-state formation hierarchy with the entry of the British, what did that do? What did that do to the earlier kingdoms, to the earlier mini-kingdoms or whatever? 
I mean, this is this is a story of the rise of the various small and big princely states, and Mahesh can talk about more eloquently about that what happened in particular parts of the foothills of the Himalayas. But uh, let me start, and you know, please join in. I, my understanding is that you know the British were very good at making treaties and getting people to sign subservient treaties, and then making kind of peace between two different kingdoms, and then dividing them also. And and these treaties provided a network of legalistic language and and uh, you know certain forms in which you know people had to come to Calcutta once a year you know and 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 you know make sure that the kingdoms had their particular subsidies and particular pensions and things like that. Um, and so it was a way of control. What what famously is in history we call indirect rule. But I'm going to ask there are more more specific histories of how this drama played out in the in the hills that Mahesh studied. So I would ask him. Yeah, I would think of, uh, when I think about the British coming to the hills and what, what, what their motivation is, and uh, this is also the time, you know, when their imagination is and uh, their need is fired by the industrial revolution that is also happening. And there is a lot of pressure on the East India Company to find a link in, 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 in Tibet. They wanted to control the wool trade. So the, they tried to control the wool trade through Darjeeling and uh, Sikkim, what is Sikkim now, into, into, into Tibet. Unfortunately, they could not. And then there were two options with them. One was the option of uh, going through Gadwal, the central Himalayas, and the other is going through, uh, through Satluj into Shimla and therefore into Tibet. They tried with a young husband, uh, they tried to raid uh, Nepal. Unfortunately, it was uh, not really uh, very successful, but after uh, <laughs> uh, the Treaty of uh, Seragoli, you know, they could, uh, con- they could get some uh, concessions. And that is where, you know, the boundaries between uh, Kamau and Nepal were, you know, cemented. Uh, Kamau provided them a very different kind of uh, uh, entry. Uh, it provided them those uh, virgin forests. Uh, their uh, railways are coming up, so they needed timber. And timber is also required at this point in time for shipbuilding. So it had to be transported not only in India, but it had to be transported back to England for uh, shipbuilding also. So there are huge forests there. But they have uh, not yet uh, given up uh, their dream of uh, reaching uh, uh, Tibet. And so a new kind of cartography starts up. They, they, they train certain Indians. There is this organization of uh, uh, locals who were trained. For instance, a traveler who wrote, there are not very many people who wrote, there is a traveler called Nansing, and he wrote his travelogues also while being a cartographer. And he, he and along which, with which others. Which years are we talking about? We are talking, this treaty happens in 1835. Mm-hmm. And we are talking of, from 1835 onwards to about, say, 1870. This is around the time the technometric survey and so on. Yeah, this happening. is also the time when all these things are and happening. The, you know, they are the, mapping, yeah. they are getting all these trigonometric surveys. They, are, they, they, they want to know about the mountains, the different uh, types of passes which can be used, all weather passes if there are any. So it's it's getting into Tibet is is one big thing, and Tibet is very important because of the what's called the the Great Gain, which was the the fight to to keep the Russian Empire at bay, right? And that creates espionage, and a lot of Bengalis are sent, you know, as dressed up as Tibetan monks, uh, looking for Shangri-La. 
Shangri-La. Yeah, they go up. And so this is, a, I'm sorry to, to intervene. No, that's but, fine. Yeah. So I but was, was just, the myth of Shangri-La created around then? or No, myth of Shangri-La would be. Has been there forever. Different, different, that's a different, different topic. Kind of, but, okay. yeah, yeah. but there's actually the, the word Shangri-La comes up in, 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 a, in a way of sort of coding what they were trying to do to get to those frontiers. And uh, uh, so there is geopolitics here. Absolutely. Yeah, it is a geopolitics. For instance, you know, when they could not really succeed in uh, reaching uh, Tibet through central uh, India, central Himalayas, they then they conceive a different kind of a route, you know. They, they, this is a route through River Satluj. And here what they are doing is there is a Gurkha invasion, meanwhile, and uh, British, they help the local kingdoms, they fight the Gurkhas. This is the time, you know, when the division between the Gadwal, so to say, and Kamaung comes over. Most of the Gadwals from the sway of the Gorkhas is taken over. The new princely states are carved. They are provided a kind of autonomy. They are provided a kind of uh, some sort of security. A, a whole sense of residency comes up. Uh, first resident offices opened in Shimla. This is a place where, you know, all the small hill states, they start flocking, they build start building in and around the residency office in Shimla. So they are... They what, also, what, what are the builds? The equivalent of an embassy or something? No, Shimla yeah, yeah, was the summer capital of the Viceroy. Right? Oh, summer capital would uh, then come in 1870s. Uh, but after, uh, you know, 1911, when it is shifted to Delhi, you know, then it is more affected. But uh, it's it's a kind of a local, you can see a lo embassy, if you were to call yeah, it yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's it's a, it's a kind of a liaison. They want to office. be in a good book of yeah. the resident, you know. Outpost. They can provide all kinds of privileges, you know, small privilege. But then they are extracting different kind of privileges. They need coolies, they need labor to carry all the goods to the frontiers. They, they also need a kind of local uh, espionage, reconnaissance so as to reach these uh, frontiers, they are still not given up the hope of reaching Tibet. It's only towards the end of the century, you know, that they realize that this is a futile hope. They cannot really reach uh, Tibet. But along with that, you know, controlling Tibet is not only controlling uh, Tibet, it's also like controlling China. Uh, at one point in time, Nepal is a very big uh, kingdom and China is a client state. But by towards the end, you know, China is coming up on its own. But think of the history, there is also a kind of a division that is going on in China also after 1842. Uh, so that's a different kind of a story. But what is happening there is, meanwhile, there is this division between the Satluj states and the eastern Punjab. Right. This is the time when Ranjit Singh has formed his own kingdom. And Ranjit Singh, you know, is uh, also trying to resist the British. So he is, uh, his forces com consists of French. And uh, there, is, there, there is this whole conspiracy, you know, still a kind of a theory that uh, he, he is conniving with the French and the Russians to defeat the British. Uh, so, <laughs> so the Cis-Satluj state also means that it's a kind of a frontier. You know, they're creating a kind of a buffer. All these princely states are a buffer to their larger possessions in the plains. And in the, the Gangetic plains. annexation of the Punjab, you know, actually changes the game in different ways. And then... So the end of Ranjit's kingdom creates more opportunities. Yeah, that would be that. But by that time, you know, Ranjit Singh had already hmm. reached Ladakh, and uh, uh, British are also considering the certain trade uh, incentives that they can uh, incentivize the hill people, but can extract something for uh, themselves. They are still thinking, you know, about these nomadic traders who are. Uh, uh, itinerizing their movement around these different kind of fairs. For instance, you know, the Gaddis, they would at uh, at a higher plane, you know, 
meet with the Tibetan traders where, where they would uh, exchange uh, sheep, goods, wool, for instance. And, you know, this, that kind of thing is also something which is being eyed. Uh, for instance, you know, there is this uh, huge uh, trading fair in Russia, in Nazini. And in Palampur, a whole small hill station for a couple of years, the British had a parallel, you know, <laughs> world trade <laughs> center. Trying you know? to recreate what the so they are, they are trying Yarmaki. to recreate, you know. <laughs> so they are trying to provide these hills, hill people and their goods. They are providing not only the hill, but all the entire central, central Asia, you know, to come through these different kinds of passes and trade with the British. So they are creating these hills as an entry port for, uh, uh, for the traders of Central Asia. So there is a lot of exchange at this point in time. But then, you know, after 1870s, after the defeat of Napoleon, by that time, you know, uh, French are no longer in the game. Uh, towards the end of the century, the Russians are no longer in the game. So then, you know, this is, uh, this, this is entirely a different thing. By 1849, as Sudipta pointed out, there is annexation of Punjab. Yeah. But with the annexation of Punjab, it's only the Punjab that is annexed. Yeah. The larger part of the hill states, you know, which were there with the Punjab are not annexed. So it's like, you know, they do not want to assume the responsibility of the hills. The hills provide them with a different kind of uh, recreations. They provide them with the sanatoriums. They provide them with the hill stations. There's so, actually a different, there's also a story of race here, which is in the later 19th century. And it has to do with British, British racial attitudes and the history of diseases. The British start believing that, especially when the theory of miasma uh, which caused disease earlier on, they mm -hmm. moved towards the understanding of germs. Uh, they believe that all these diseases are plains diseases, the mountains are much more salubrious, and British children would survive if they were put in the hills. And the British want to recreate, you know, um, a, a new kind of hill stations where they can actually be themselves. It's raining, it's full of fog. When did the first hill stations come? First hill stations start in the later 19th century you know, 1870s, 1880s, that, that era, you know. Um, Darjeeling is a very interesting example of, you know, how they did not, would not allow uh, hill plains people to go. You needed only porters and coolies would be allowed. And a lot of people died bringing all those things up for the hill stations. That's where they would, you know, have horse riding and the malls and, you know, and establish these schools where only the, the sons of, and, and of, of princes would be allowed to study along with the English school children. And so we often use the word the nurseries of the ruling class, you know, the Babalog. Um, and so Shimla, you know, um, Dalhousie, uh, Sanawar. All the boarding schools. All yeah, the boarding, you know, yeah. And with the ICS in their offices. And then, and the you, know, kids, the yeah. you know, then the Doon school later. And then we have appropriated that. And then tourism is, is becomes part of that. So there's a, but the early story is fascinating about the way Darjeeling is created. They, they try to bring a small gauge railways up through the hills. It's very difficult to do. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, they, they have to come up with new engineering feats. And they have a goom station. Yeah, apparently the one of the engineer's wife shows him how in, in, in walls you have to step back to go forward. So they, he comes up with the idea, oh, the engine has to actually back up and then rev up again to go over, <laughs> a, over a hill. But also I remember uh, reading somewhere that, you know, just as the beginning of the, the first station, when the, where the railways leave Siliguri, 25 leopards had to be killed to sort of clear the area over time. Um, and there are stories of people dying without adequate protection from the cold, especially porters. Interesting. If you look at the hills from the vantage point of, of the contemporary times, 
why why do the hills and the mountains evoke something spiritual like what's going on why do you think that happens i know you i know you're historians but what what's your take on this is it's, it's, is there are the clues in the text you've studied yeah, and what you thought yeah it's not only now it's always been there why it's not only the mountains i think it's the forests we have to think about the forests you don't say and, that for the coasts you yeah, don't, we say don't that for that for the coast for instance you know immediately after the 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 vedas the why the, why the, is the god sahitas the next thing that comes up is aryanaks the whole literature of aryanaks which means going to the mountains the whole literature of upanishads which is composed in the mountains the whole ideas of seers the rishis they are situated in the forest but these are so forests is, in the hills yeah these are the forests in the hills why yeah. so yeah that's what i'm trying to tell you so this this idea has always been there there is this mysticism that is associated with the forest you know the forest is a two way thing you know they are the forbidding forest on the one hand but there is also there is also these forests you know as a source of inspiration they provide you a kind of an inspiration they provide you an environment where you come and you sit and you think and when you when you start thinking about the way the people and the frontiers and the the kingdoms are also moving these are the people who have who have been provided with grants on these frontiers the, the way the first temples for instance they come up these are on the borders of these forests you know borders of the states so you mark mark a border of a state with a temple and as the state grows you mark the border of the you, new you keep moving the temple with, with, the, with the new temple right. so that's a kind of a move landmarks literally. landmarks but on the other hand when you do think, shepherds have temples Uh, no shepherds don't have do they, they, do they, they have gods the shepherds do have gods they do have do they worship religion they do worship but they don't have a kind of a static temples as we think about they don't I have mean, a place of worship they don't have a place of worship they have sacred groves for instance they, they have a sacred groves not necessarily the shepherds have but all the godlings for instance we think about they have the sacred groves and that that's one reason you know and it it's even today that apart from this huge deforestation that took place during the times of british and later on the forests could be saved because of the sacred groves you can you can't go you can't hunt in the sacred groves you can't fell a tree you can't even you know without the permission of the local gods you can't even graze in the sacred and these groves. are these are these, these, these are religious norms cultural norms what are they well both they they their religion and culture you know it's so they fused very into synonymous. each other you know it's, yeah. it's 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 a, it's a belief as i said earlier even the also, british actually you know? respected the to to a degree you know the the sanctity of some of these groves which is actually interesting in the yeah, long yeah it is you know because run. it would well, mean well these 23 that, leopards were not so lucky no no <laughs> yeah 23 <laughs> see they are outside they are outside the pale of those sacred groves you know? yes, there yes. there is a whole Uh, industry of hunting which is going on in the hills and you know even in the plains the so, jim corbett was in kumau <laughs> jim corbett was in a kumau and uh, jim 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 did he stay away from a, these sacred groves yeah they, they are not the sacred groves everywhere you know of i course. mean jim corbett they, they, supposedly they, hunted tigers yeah, he, to, to 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 save people right the manager but sometimes he also killed He did. like the bachelor of powelgar is a complete story of murder because he just just yep. killed the tiger out of sheer pleasure on the just coat just pure game hunting pure hunting so and he feels bad about it a little bit but that's jim corbett who is one of the the progenitors of a forest conservation hunters became later but course. think of all the people who had, didn't have any compunction think of how many tigers were bagged in the hills 
And coming to that, you know, one would, if I may add, you know, I mean, we have these misconceptions, for instance, you know, the tribes about about the Gaddi, about the shepherds, and they are always moving with the animals. But the way, the amount of respect they have for their animals, you know, that is amazing. They don't kill their goat. They, they would eat, they are meat eaters, but they will only eat the meat if the goat is dead. You know, if it has been devoured, you know, to a larger extent by some bigger animal, you know, then they would, but they would never kill a live goat, you know, except for a very rare ritualistic purposes or say the, there are certain rites of passage, you know, where they have to kill, you know, only then. There are symbolic sacrifices that they would do. And this would be the case with the most the herders. You know, they would only kill when they have to. So what? Just like the animals, you know, they would use each and every. They will ensure that each and every part of the animal is used. So they, they, they would have, if someone is giving their life for them, you know, they have to respect the life of the one which is And the philosophy killed. is deterrence rather than killing wild animals. So protect their flocks. The, sh the dogs that are used and, and, to, and from wolves, from, you know, and that, you know, those are very interesting. To, the Banjara is also the same thing to pro, uh, protect. They often uh, trap tigers, let them go, didn't kill. Um, and they respected the, the border between the grazing land, the scrub, and then the scrub in the forest. What was not sacred? What is not sacred for them? Like the forest, animals, like is there... Oh, <laughs> profane. Someone is profane. <laughs> Is, is there something like that? Was there something like that? Um, the, see, understanding sacred is, uh, I think, uh, in a way would answer your question. How do you think about a Muslim herder worshipping Krishna? What is sacred to him? How would you think about a Muslim herder worshipping the, the goddess of the forest, the Bankhandi? This is both the Gaddi, the who are supposed to be the Hindu herders, they're the shepherds, and the Muslim herders. Uh, this is, they, they have the same existential problems. They are living in the same kind of a terrain, and they are uh, facing the same kind of elements. So they have a similar kind of, uh, similar kind of uh, understanding of the terrain and a similar kind of system of belief through which, which they invoke to protect themselves. So what is, if, if, I, if I were to think about the Gujars as a Muslim per se, I would think that, you know, this is, this is a kind of a profanity, you know, yeah. that is being committed. If I were to think about the Gaddis, you know, uh, I would think that even the, for instance, you know, the whole notion of pilgrimage to Mani Mahesh, and one of the tales about the Mani Mahesh is, now, what is money and what is Mahesh? Mahesh, of course, is Shiva is a later kind of a construct. Uh, but what is money? And money is, uh, as one of the tale goes, is that when the Tibetan kingdom from Ladakh, it uh, literally penetrated through the Himalayas as far as uh, the Burmore, the area of the Gaddis. One of the lake, you know, there, were, there, there, there are certain inscriptions also known as money stones. And this is a simple Om Mani Padmeham. It's a simple incantation of the, uh, that are the jewelries in the lotus. This is simple Lamaic incantation. So from money comes from there, you know, that money is in the lake. So how the, how that money becomes over a time period becomes a symbol of pilgrimage, right. a symbol of Hindu pilgrimage. Connected today to Shiva. A, connected to Shiva. And today it's a pan-Indian kind of a thing that it has grown. Yeah, maybe into. the right word is not sacred, but the right word is respect. Yeah. And sometimes people have an attitude of respect 
they you know they have a different world you know in which you you can have you can be a muslim you can be a muslim you can be a practicing be... hindu but at the same time we respect some certain natural milestones certain natural you know uh, do these uh, sacred groves exist today this the yes. sacred groves exist today in fact there was this huge project that was conceived in manali a ropeway project and the ropeway project couldn't take uh, couldn't be launched because uh, it had to cut through the sacred groves and the local devta said that no way i'm not giving my sacred grove away the local that, devta yeah like why uh, again why a shaman yeah, of course again why 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 oracle or a gur as they would call it the medium through which it would speak and this is a how large are these are these are these small sanctuary like areas or these are fairly large and vast today today the today the temples of the local devtas are big they are styled you know monstrosities as you see anywhere in india earlier they used to be a small iconic uh, uh, we're talking about this earlier like tiny little places yeah, you know yeah tiny little places and these are movable places you know you can put it in a palki in a palanquin you know and you would carry from uh, from my home to your home so the devta would it is not that the people visiting the devta only the devta would visit you and you know you would host the devta you Our... the devta would stay with you all the the entire clan would gather to and that is happening even today so it's not a question how big they are culturally they are very big in the imagination of people they are very big they are big to their lives but in terms of territory they are very small but still they command they command enough it's not a question of one devta saying no you know this is where you know what sadipta was saying earlier about the confederacy you know if one devta says no and they had gone with the ropeway project all the devtas all the people it's not only the devtas the people associated with the devta devtas still in the eyes of people continues to be the sovereign of the territory irrespective of it being an indian territory you know yes so even with that kind of a construct you know there would have been a huge halabalu there would have been a huge protest and resistance that the government wanted to avoid so the government also was got interested in shelving that project there was a huge american uh, uh, protest after that you know when because there was huge investment that was involved in manali ropeway project so devtas they still have that uh, considerable clout when we think about uh, when we think and the about idea the of this kind of authority that comes from old traditions like we use the word shaman very loosely i mean this yeah, is shaman the think about um, the mongols chengiz khans you know the shamans there yeah. what's the word lama right so lamas actually predate buddhism in some ways uh, today that the the shamanistic the shamanias uh, that the sometimes the in the arabic text the shamanias comes from the word shramana a buddhist monk you know so that which is also used for for um, you know these um, shamans you know this this uh, word actually has a much deeper antiquity and so uh, no all organized religions actually have to make compromises with local traditions and incorporate things and incorporate things uh, sometimes the process can be uh, you know testy uh, problematic sometimes yeah. the process can be hugely uh, successful huh? yeah. hugely yeah. successful yeah. Yeah. sometimes for both sides that's right that's right so so we have to th- keep our minds open about a sacred and desecrated you know what is being um, but one thing is true that people if you hold something uh, in reverence then that thing like a forest or a mountain being depleted when when some people can see only a bauxite mine or uh, some people can come can only come and see timber or some people can come only see wild game 
that is a very different attitude, um, you know, that you bring into you the You somehow see the parts, but somehow there's another way where you see yeah. another kind of whole. Or, or you don't see the people that yeah. are part of it. I mean, yes. this is what Kumuti Maji said during the Niyamgiri struggle, that, you know, you can relocate us, mm -hmm. but how, you, how can you relocate our, house, our gardens and our, our forests, and how can you relocate the animals? Yeah. Where would they go when you, when you have the bauxite mine? What's the future, Shulipto? Why don't we end with this? When you visualize a world of 10,000 years later, and you're a historian, so I'm pretty sure you can do that pretty easily. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking about science fiction in some ways also. Um, um, future no, of hills, future of mountains, future of these yeah. sorts of territories which are... Well, one of the biggest challenges we have to face is trying to understand what is going to be the impact of climate change. Um, you know, when the snowpacks disappear, as they're disappearing, will the rivers still flow? And if the rivers don't flow, what would be the, you know, the tributaries that flow through the hills that bring life-saving water to these people? What would happen to you know, with further depletion uh, of, of certain kinds of fauna. And we haven't fauna... spoken about rivers, but presumably they're central to yeah. the way... Rivers, reservoirs, small lakes, you know, uh, up in the mountains, these are lifelines, you know. And do people end up inhabiting in and around river, river valleys, river basins? Often. Lakes, often. often. And, Similar and access, to... To, access to rivers and access for, for various things. The small streams and small waterfalls are so important in the hills. And those avenues through the cutting through the mountains, like in Nepali, they say chorbato. So you you rather than going in a spiral, uh, you actually can go through shortcuts uh, <laughs> to the water, you know, and other things. You know, those things are yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a different of... kind of a geography that uh, the British cartographers could not map. Right. But it's in the heads and practices and the bodies of people and women who do the labor of, of often of taking care of children and water and washing. And cooking, you know, it's their story and their their lives. Th those histories are going to be affected in ways that we cannot really foresee, you know, in a, in but, a, in a but, minute But detail. is there a way in which, uh, obviously, only the hills and mountains are not going to be impacted? It would be, it would well, be, the hills, hills it would be the, what lies downstream, which is the plains, right. and therefore the whole world. When the, when there are hills that are actually disappearing today in Chotanagpur, uh, in in Jharkhand, there are hills disappearing in Orissa, where being flattened, uh, flattened because of of mines and you know stones and granite, and uh, they make know, for such. good bathroom tiles, I guess. You have no idea. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. It's so depressing. Uh, you know how small rivers are also disappearing because of the sand that is being harvested, sometimes illegally, sometimes legally, uh, with or without permit. I mean, that kind of... But what's legal anyway, but that's another... Uh, that yeah. kind of... I mean, I you know I hate to say that, that kind of extraction has always been going on. It's just the scale has intensified and, you know... Because um, we have the technologies. We have the technology and we also have... A and we have the market. Middle-class imagination that if you don't have a granite sink or, you know, kitchen, then you, you cannot, uh, you know, you will not be able to... Somehow your shave is inferior. Uh, I, I, I don't want to uh, unnecessarily, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, denigrate people who have uh, simple dreams of having a nice kitchen, but there there's yeah. some realities about how much we can sustain. What's the future? Uh, well, if there are no hills, you know, there is no life. But would there the be no hills? So it seems. Uh, you think so? I hope yes, not. I hope, I hope not. not. We do hope <laughs> no. not. But uh, the way, you know, the what 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 has happened in recent past and even is happening today is a pointers towards, you know, the grim future. 
it's not only about the climate change it's also about you know the But you started have. by saying that there's something impenetrable permanent yeah, that study is, that, going that, that they have that is one of the conceptions of the <laughs> of, of of the hills you so know so we're able mountain, to break into them and we are that that's what we have been you doing know, for the past 150 years Kalidasa calls Kalidasa yeah. calls the Himalayas the spine of the world uh-huh. And so you know, if you break the spine of the world, yeah, then it it's is, over. It is, it is. But this is, the, if anything, you know, the recent days has taught us with the with these torrential rains, with these uh, uh, the type of uh, roads that we have taken into the into the hills and into the mountains, the type of tunnels that we are taking. But uh, isn't the, isn't that almost the opposite trend, where somehow the hills uh, reclaim territory, uh, reclaim their original majesty? water flows the way it wants to uh, the water you if there is a water it will flow away you know i mean if there are no glaciers there is no water you know and uh, <laughs> then the water doesn't flow yeah. but uh, even if, even it's the greed of the man for instance uh, for instance if you what's go the, to good news? If, if if you go to kullu and it's uh, the, the, the number of hotels that have come up on the river uh, river bias what's the good and, news uh, you know we, what has happened is you know it washed down everything the hills have come crumbled in 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 gadwal the hills have crumbled in himachal and today it's all devastation we want to reach uh, the borders of china but we are building the tunnels but we need roads to reach there the roads are being washed away so what is happening is that what the way we are conceiving development today you know that development is impeding in a certain sense come on mahesh what's the good news the good news is yeah. that uh, news we is have to be to... we have to be like a mountain you know we have to be patient we have to let the culture grow we have to respect the mount culture of the mountains or or for that matter any culture let that, let it grow organically like a forest you know let let, let us let us not plant the exotic plants so in the forest so these shepherds land. these shepherds that you for spoke instance, into for instance we are the shepherds you know why would the shepherds they live a hard life today you know they 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 too would like to settle down they are also they are also settling down the number of sheep are coming down today the numbers of yaks are coming down there is also a conflict for instance in ladakh you know where the chinese are not allowing these people into their uh, territory what was their territory is taken over by china the meadow land lands are uh, or the pastures are shrinking so where do these people go when we are shrinking everything when we are, when we are shrinking the resources obviously the herders are dying the herd is dying therefore the herders are dying they are well the world down. is always changing the, the, the old what old order goes the new so order comes it's not only the old order goes <laughs> well, I, it, i thought i was looking for good news uh, yeah, the, the good yeah, news is the that there are limits to there are limits to extraction there are limits to what you can do and hopefully the lessons will be learned uh, maybe the cost is to a degree human lives but uh, you know how many i mean these are very risky ventures you know and some some sense one day will return to us that you know that in order to actually prosper we have to give something back and i also have a lot of faith in our next generation i see around me and i might be wrong maybe i am starry eyed but lots of young people who understand these problems who are local people who are also you know are are able to organize on their own and you know um sundarlal bahuguna and the movement uh, which created uttarakhand actually halted the the building of the tehri dam for decades uh which was a very very successful struggle uh, until it it broke um we just need um other kinds of stances like that in which uh you know there pe- everybody wants to uh, to do something about the warming of the planet everybody wants to do so something so as opposed to the hills being the background somehow they have, they have to be, to be in the foreground. foreground the foreground 
and different kinds of tourism as, are being devised. Of course, you know, we have to figure out how to make make them viable. Uh, I would like to live in a world in which the the shepherds and the tourists can live yeah. um, side by side and benefit what, from each what, other's what presence. What I think is what we what we need is a kind of a will. What we need is a kind of an organization. What we need is a kind of a planning. And we For need instance, new shamans. You know, yeah, well, I mean, these are the local traditions. A shaman is very welcome, you know. I mean, we until and unless you respect a, a culture, a local tradition, you know, what is a what is a tourist going to do in the mountain? Mountains have to be experienced. Mountains have to be felt. There is nothing to see otherwise. Domino's pizza. And, and do, if you get a Domino's pizza in Mumbai, and if you get a Domino's <laughs> pizza in Manali, you know, there is no need to go to Manali to eat a Domino's pizza until and unless you yeah. can flavor the flavor of Manali. Yeah, and that has to be experienced. And if the government, what is the, the flavor of Manali? Uh, I, I am not going to say that cannabis is the flavor of Manali. For instance, for a long time, this has been a <laughs> huge trade with the plains from the mountains to to Punjab. I mean, this has to be mentioned. For me, the the smell of churras also hangs in the air in Garhwal. That <laughs> it, it does. It does. Yeah. It does. True. But but, True. but but we have to have this. You know, we have a very beautiful. Imagery, for instance, we have this imagery of uh, the descent of Ganga. The descent of Ganga. Yeah. And it's the imagery of Shiva and, you know, his uh, dreadlocks flowing. And the Ganga is, you know, coming down to the plains. Comes gurgling down. Thanks, this to, is, this thanks is, to Bhagiratha. Bhagiratha, yes, of course. And uh, the dreadlock of, this is only representative because it's all the rivers are coming down from the from, from the crown. Shiva holds the Ganga in his dead dress for, for millions for of years. Yeah, for years. And finally, when because you know the earth will not be able to withstand the flow, and then it she it flows into a lake called Bindu, from which it then comes to the to the plains. Wonderful. So, so if we don't have if if we don't allow that descent of Ganga, mm. all the rivers, you know, the plains would die. In yeah. a certain sense, the so oceans it's, it's imperative. Dry. It's imperative that a hill sustain. We are facing the water wars in the coming yeah. years if we continue with the way we are going right now. So I think some kind of planning is needed. We, the government, the people, the cultures, the NGOs, they have to come together and they have to think and devise ways of sustaining the hills, of sustaining the cultures, of sustaining the people. And it's water is hope. Um, the word abad which is so common in India, comes from the word Persian word ab, which means ab. water. So ab, you know, abad, abad, yeah. And abadi means, right, you know, prosperity. Around right? water. Around water. So if water is hope, let the hope flow. We have to let, the, let hope flow uh, and not impede hope. The worst thing we can do is to impede hope itself. And sometimes the, the kind of uh, problem I have with the discourse of climate change is that there is no hope and everything is al already lost. I would say, don't give up the battle without fighting the battle. And so I would say that, I mean, joining my voices with my friend Mahesh here, I would say that as he's saying that, you know, um, that that if go to the people who are surviving this onslaught and learn from them and try to bring that message back to our schools and our university and our audience. And, uh, you know, let's learn from, from people who are surviving in different ways. Well, Shudipto, nice and starry-eyed. Thanks. Uh, that is... That's a good note to end this on and thank you for coming. We look forward to having you soon again. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.